Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard. Hillard is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community and furthers the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Jeffrey Hillard. Hi. It's a really good program today. I'm really thrilled um, about this program. It's going to be a two-segment program. Uh, For the first segment, for about the first 15 minutes or so, I'm going to uh, uh, bring back up one of our local legendary writers um, who passed away in 2008 but left his indelible stamp on literature in the city of Cincinnati, and that's Dallas Wiebe, former professor at the University of Cincinnati, uh, writer extraordinaire and literary advocate for this community like none we've ever had, probably. Uh, Dallas left a treasure trove of short, short baseball stories. So I'm going to, in honor of baseball season starting up here in April, I'm going to read one of his short, short stories from an unpublished collection um, that's in his archives. And then in the second 15 minutes, I'm going to, or so, I'm going to be joined by poet Charles Gable, who is one of the best poets writing in Cincinnati, and he is one of our librarians of the Public Library in Cincinnati and Hamilton County. So I really am thrilled to have Charles in the studio with me today to read a selection of his poems. I want to start with Dallas Wiebe, and for many writers in Cincinnati, Dallas Wiebe is no secret. He helped hundreds of writers in the city find their chops, uh, find ways to publication. He helped with manuscripts. Not only that, but he was as prolific a writer as we've had in Cincinnati in terms of publication record and just all, just in terms of his stature. He had a national reputation. It was more of a cult reputation in anything because his his work was relatively uh, unique uh, darkly comic he had a very darkly comic sensibility and it was coupled with this extraordinary penchant for uh, unusual subject matter and the baseball story I'm going to read today is a story called ending the slump and before I read that story let me just Uh, say a word about his career. He began teaching at the University of Wisconsin in 1960. Dallas left the University of Wisconsin in 63 and went to the University of Cincinnati as assistant professor in English. In 1968, he initiated creative writing courses at UC, which paved the way for the creation of the university's creative writing program in 1976. Dallas taught in the program from the beginning of that program uh, until 1993 and served as director for eight years. Uh, He left an amazing imprint on any writing that even today uh, is being done at the University of Cincinnati, and that would include its graduate programs. Uh, It was Dallas Wiebe's original vision in the late 60s and early 70s that helped carve the path to writing Uh, at the University of Cincinnati. Also, it was my great pleasure to work with Dallas for many years 
uh, as associate editor on Cincinnati Poetry Review. And in terms of just literary out, uh, literary advocacy, I would say that Cincinnati Poetry Review is perhaps his 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 stellar um, legacy in the city. Uh, it was a phenomenal poetry publication. Uh, the last issue was published in 2010. Um, he also co-founded Cincinnati Writers Project in 1998, and I was alongside him at that time as well to co-found that organization. And Cincinnati Writers Project still runs strong to this day with two different workshops, a fiction workshop, two fiction workshops, actually, and a poetry workshop. So there's three workshops going through Cincinnati Writers Project. And you could read more about Cincinnati Writers Project, something that Dallas and I started in 1998 at CincinnatiWritersProject.org. So the story I'm going to read today is called Ending the Slump. And Dallas published a number of his baseball stories in Spitball Magazine that was created and produced and published by Mike Shannon for many years. And uh, Dallas was a fairly much a regular in that annual and sometimes uh, semi-annual publication. So this is a story called Ending the Slump. Baseball story. Johnny Patterson ended his month-long batting slump when he read about neutrinos. He was sitting in the lobby of the Spaldino Hotel in Pittsburgh, and it was raining hard. He was waiting with the rest of the Mets for the bus to take them to Three Rivers Stadium for an afternoon game with the Pirates. He sat in the most distant corner he could find. He knew the rest of the team wanted nothing to do with him. His bad luck charm might rub off on them. He picked up a magazine off the lampstand by the chair. It was a copy of Scientific American, and the first article was about subatomic particles. When the season began, Johnny was hot. He hit well, and by June 1st he was batting. He was pushing 333. By August 1st he was down to 230. Then everything stopped. By September the 1st he was sitting on the bench and feeling like he was in a cloud chamber. 76 straight at-bats without a hit. An average of 193. When the team bus would arrive, he knew he would sit clear at the back of the bus in all the fumes with a pitcher whose record was 0-7. and seven. He figured that one day the bus wouldn't stop at a stadium in a major league city. It would take him right on down to Class A ball. Johnny tried everything to get out of his slump. He entered a vacuum genesis. He went without breakfast. He had his bat blessed by a Coptic priest. He poured chicken blood over the handle. He took his bat to a rock concert by a group called the Louisville Sluggers. He took the bat to bed with him and kissed it goodnight. He rubbed the barrel with Latino sperm. He took his bat on a double date with an outfielder from the Atlanta Braves who was, who was batting 396. He stood out in a thunderstorm. He held the bat up over his head. He hoped it would be struck by lightning. Nothing worked until he read about neutrinos. The article in Scientific American was about how some physicists were trying to establish experimental proof 
for some imagined facts. They were building huge underground lakes to trap the little bits. They were making chambers to try to find traces of them. They were building atomic accelerators the length and breadth of Texas to try to manufacture one. It turned out, as Johnny realized, that the little particles pass through anything and everything. Hence, no evidence. No one had ever seen one. No one had recorded one. Neutrinos were figments, ghosts. A game to confuse a hitter who couldn't even see a pitched baseball, who couldn't even see a pop-up to the outfield, who couldn't see the ball as it rolled through his legs to the fence for an inside-the-park home run for some banjo hitter from Cincinnati. The rain stopped. The bus came. Johnny went to the back and sat in the fumes and thought about how small neutrinos must be maybe even smaller than his batting average. He wondered how they'd look as they passed through the air. As he tried to imagine one coming at him, he remembered the book he'd found the night before in the lamp table in his hotel room. It was about something called an arrow catcher. It was about some fair where a man could see how the air parted as the arrow flew toward him, how the man didn't see the arrow just the parting of the air so that he knew exactly when to grab the arrow shaft as it flew by in its angular momentum. Inside the front cover was an inscription. It read, Please steal this book. No one will ever buy it. The author. When the players got off the bus at Three Rivers Stadium, the sun was shining so brightly they could hardly see. Johnny felt dizzy as he got off. He covered his eyes in the absolute luminosity. He groped towards the locker room door. He put so much blackening on his face that the starting pitcher, Bob Sugar Mason, said Johnny looked like he was going to perform in a minstrel show. Danny Hadron said his face looked like a black hole. After batting practice, Johnny sat on the bench and hoped no one would notice his face covered with the dark matter of the loser. His eyes quivered as he tried to see the color of the game. The field was a blur. In the sixth inning, all he could see was a huge blinding over the game. He knew the score was 16-12, to 12, favor Pittsburgh. He knew that manager Sam Fermi had been kicked out for spitting in Augie Al Gordo's the home face, the home plate umpire's left eye, when arguing a called third strike on his best hitter, Eddie Teller, who was called... Einstein by his teammates because he could explain the zoo hypothesis. Bobby Joe Oppenheimer was being shellacked on the mound. The score and the blur got bigger and brighter. When the ninth inning began, the score was 17-16, favor Pittsburgh. Johnny couldn't see past the critical density of the tobacco spit at the front of the dugout, and the bench was empty except for himself. When the Mets loaded the bases after two were out, he was the only player available to pinch hit. The acting manager, the pitching coach, Sandy Doppler, looked at the last player and he spit. He was a Christian, so he said, Doggone it, Patterson. Get your dad blame bat and try to get hit by a pitch. Just try to get hit by a pitch.
Johnny looked into the brilliant blur that was like background radiation. He rubbed his eyes to ease his horizon problem, and there she stood like antimatter. She had on sparkling red high heel shoes. Her white anklets were turned down over her ankles. She had on a blue dress, a white apron, and a six-pointed gold crown, and she carried a golden wand topped by five-pointed star. The shaft of the wand had an oval emblem along one side. Inside the oval was printed Louisville Slugger. The star glowed like radioactive metal and gluons, baryons, and bosons flew in all directions from the points. The particles seemed to pass through everything. Through her brown eyes, her pointed nose, her ruby lips, her brown pigtails, they passed through Johnny's eyes and through his bat. She waved the wand over Johnny's head as he stood up to get his bat when Doppler said, Go get hit by the pitch. Johnny got up. He walked to the cooler and drank a heavy cup of water. He pulled his cap tight. He grabbed his bat and stepped across the creek of chewing tobacco spit in front of the dugout. She held her wand up in her right hand. She raised her left hand and said, I'll grant you three wishes if you can answer three riddles. Shoot, Johnny said. What have I got to lose but the blackened face and my steady, my steady state batting average? First, she said, Is pine tar their preferred food as center fielders? Oh, heck, said Johnny. Everyone knows they eat it on their Wheaties for breakfast. Second, she said, Do sunflower seeds grow in the ears of shortstops? Shoot, said Johnny. Everyone knows they trim their roots with their teeth. Third, she said, Is chewing tobacco spit a thought experiment in the rotator cuffs of left-handers? Dadgummit, said Johnny. Those things are made out of hog piss. She waved her magic wand. The neutrinos flew about like inebriated physicists. The masons tippy-toed along the head of the bat. Now, she said, you get three wishes. What are your three wishes going to be, Johnny? How about three, five, two, he said. What do you mean by three, five, two, she said. Gold dang it. Don't you know nothing about baseball? It's a batting average. I want to hit 352, 352. She smiled, waved her neutrino stick, and she said, you got it, turkey. Johnny stepped into the batter's box. He stared into the blur. He didn't see the first two pitches, both strikes. He didn't see the next three pitches, all balls. It was all shadow matter. He stepped out of the batter's box. She smiled at him. He thought about the arrow catcher. He thought about neutrinos. He thought about symmetry, spin, and singularity. He thought about escape velocity. He remembered the parting of the air. He didn't see the next pitch either, but he saw the air part. He saw a tiny object sliding along the cleft in the brightness. 
He looked along the emission lines and into the world line. He heard her yell, slam it, slam that ball. His bat came around into the split air. He felt the object decouple from his bat, and he heard her yell again, run, sucker, run, run, Johnny. He did. He ran. The ball made a quantum leap and passed through the infield as if the ball were invisible. The air parted, but the second baseman didn't know about neutrinos. The first base coach, the first base coach held up his hands to stop Johnny, but Johnny didn't see the coach and ran through him. He ran through second base. He ran right through the third base coach as if the coach didn't exist. He ran right through the th- he he just became his own figment, his own flavor, his own imagined entity his own proof of theoretical matter. In the bottom of the ninth, Raleigh Cork set down the Pirates on three pitches, and the Mets won 20-17. Johnny was back in left field, but his slump was over. When When the Mets opened the World Series, his batting average was 352. That's a sh- baseball short, short story by Dallas Weeby. And as you can tell uh, by that story, he had his own singular vision and his own way of getting odd and strange and unique details and kind of interweaving them with a the storyline uh, to make them almost kind of magically real. So uh, happy to present that story. In this uh, second segment of the podcast, uh, I'd like to welcome in poet Charles Gable. I'm really fond of Charles's work, uh, even though I haven't known him that long. I just met him a couple of months ago at a workshop I conducted down here at the library, poetry workshop, and we got to talking, and I wanted to see his poems, and he sent me some selected poems of his. Uh, He's a young poet, and I'm very happy to have him here in the studio to read um, a couple of selections of some of his favorite poets and in some of his own work. And uh, this is a kind of preface, uh, a kind of launching um, for uh, the Poetry in the Garden series that will begin in April. And there'll be readings held each Tuesday in April, beginning at 7 o'clock, down here at the main public library. The Poetry in the Garden series is a a fascinating and well-established poetry series. So I'm really happy to have Charles here. Uh, Charles graduated from Loyola in Chicago in 2009. He got his MFA in creative writing from Boise State University in 2012. He's currently working on a manuscript called Oracular Organism. So I'm happy to have Charles in the studio. Hi. So um, first I'm going to read from a few few different things that... um, you can actually check out. You want to make library staff happy? Come come check out books. Um, so these are some of my favorite. Uh, some are contemporary. Some are a couple will be a little, a little older. But the first thing I'm going to read is from uh, this book by the poet Jeffrey G. O'Brien called uh, People on Sunday. And this poem is called Distraction. Spencer coined blatant to show us the scandal of truth can only be inv- invented. The same holds true for you, in whom subject and object sound alike a common depth. 
the never other than lost con- continuity, Grossman defines as present wherever poems are present. Stein says they will not nearly know, as if she were one of the romantics, but it is not talking about the rain or the, about a ruin or freeze. What is she talking about? The etymology of blatant, which has caused speculation precisely because it was coined. The fact that Spencer used it to modify beast makes its kinship with, uh, makes its kinship with blatant bleeding in 16th century Scots appealing, but the Latin blatire to babble also makes sense in context. Stein is blatant, especially in stanzas in meditation from which the quotation above comes, as does you should never be pleased with anything. Both quotes address the you of poetry at a point where knowing and pleasing lose their hold. This is the faith behind the wager of the 18th century actor Richard Daly, who believed the mind of the Irish to be so perfectly athwart the subjective and objective states that he was willing to bet a word of no meaning should be the common talk, a puzzle of the city in 24 hours. In the course of this time, the letters Q, U, I, and Z were chalked or pasted on all the walls of Dublin with an effect that won the wager. The etymology of quiz is blatant, that of blatant quizzical, which is not the case with stanza, clearly from dwelling or room, in the Romance languages, but really from stare, to stand. So when Stevens writes, stanza my stone, he is asking that Stein be made into a place to stand for poetry. But of whom does he ask this? For Grossman, the answer is staring you in the face, while for Spencer, it's under the dragon skin of community. It must be relentlessly tested, even forgotten and resurrected, haunting poems like the floating face of Absalom, Absalom, that accompanies Sutpen down off the mountain into an understanding of class. Dragon skin is also the name for a type of flexible body armor produced by Pinnacle, made of high tensile ceramic discs arranged in imbricated overlapping configuration, then encased in, in an aramid textile cover. There's a level five variant not available to the general public, but the public needs no protection so long as it stays general. Not that it does, unfortunately, especially in Stein, where in changing it inside that out inside out, nobody is stout. Her poem babbles on until you live in the rooms of Grossman's account of Crane's The Broken Tower, a poem he argues is about vocation, another calling. Here is a wall and some chalk. And now I'm going to read a poem by uh, Fred Moten uh, from one of my favorite recent books called The Field Trio. And this is the first poem in the book because I always feel like the first poem, if you're new to poetry, I think the first poem in the book always spend the most time on that when you're getting started because I think it teaches you how to read the book. Whenever I listen to Cornelius, I think of Cecily then Fry, then House, then Read the Blacks with Peter Paul. But sometimes it gets deep in the hold and the cell's hard pleasure curls up in the water. So I sail the dark river in the mind, my rocket ship, my high water everywhere is outer space, Alabama, and stay alive in the concept with an outbound feeling of refuge. I'm a run, 
I'm a run. I'm going to run to the city of refuse in Russell's anarchy for Angola by Soaz. Then bright Dennis Morris take my baby picture and I'm risen in the blamed out underground. I get preoccupied with the tonal situation. I got to kiss somebody to end up in the original. It's like that outside drama is our knowledge of the world and nobody claims it but us. We get it twisted in the diagram. We know the score. We got a plan. This next poem is from uh, uh, the Selected Poems of Alice Notley, which is called Grave of Light. This is, there's, there's a video of her reading it on YouTube, but I'll read it now and then maybe, or maybe just like skip ahead and go watch it on YouTube instead. No, listen to the podcast. I'm joking. Um, But this is called uh, Jack Would Speak Through the Imperfect Medium of Alice. So I'm an alcoholic Catholic mother lover, yet there is no Swedish nectar, no fuzzed peach thing, no song sing but in the word, to which I am starlessly, unreachably faithful. You pedant, and you politically righteous, and you alive, You think you can peel my sober word apart from my drunken word, my Buddhist word apart from my white sugar Therese word, my word to comrade from my word to my mother, but all my words are one word, my lives one, my last to first wound, wound round in finally fiberless crystalline skein. I began as a drunkard and ended as a child. I began as an ordinary cruel lover and ended as a boy who read radiant newsprint. I began physically embarrassing, bloated, and ended as a perfect black-haired laddie. I began unnaturally subservient to my mother and ended in the crib of her goldenness. I began in a final hemorrhage and ended in a tiny love's body, perfect smallest one. But I began in a word and I ended in a word, and I know that word better than any knows me or knows that word, probably, but I only asked to know it. The word is the word when I say me bloated, and when I say me manly, it's the word, that word I write perfectly, lovingly, one and one after the other. But you, you can only take it when it's that one and not the uh, some other one. Or you say he lost it, as if I, I so nothing, could never could ever lose the word but when there's only one word when you know them the words the words are all only one word the perfect word my body my alcohol my pain my death are only the perfect word as i tell it to you poor sweet categorizers listen every me i was and wrote were only and all gently that one perfect word and I'll read this one Jack Spicer poem called Sporting Life. And this is in another book you can check out from the library. Um, the Collected Poetry of Jack Spicer. Uh, it's also, it's got the title, and this is one of my favorite things. Um, his last words were, my vocabulary did this to me. Um, and that's the title of his collected poems. And this is a poem called Sporting Life. The trouble with comparing a poet with a radio is that radios don't develop scar tissue. The tubes burn out. Or with a transistor, which which most souls are, the battery or diagram burns out, replaceable or not replaceable. But not like that. 
punch-drunk fighter in the bar, the poet takes too many messages. The right to the ear floored him in New Jersey. The right to say that he stood six rounds with a champion. Then they sell beer or go on sporting commissions or, if the scar tissue is too heavy, demonstrate in the bar where the invisible champions might not have hit him. Too many of them. The poet is a radio. The poet is a liar. The poet is a counter-punching radio. And those messages, God would not damn them, do not even know they are champions. And now I'm going to read um, just a couple of my own from that, that manuscript I'm working on uh, called Oracular Organism. I'm going to start with two poems um, that actually start the manuscript, and then I'll read some recent ones. These are uh, two poems that are actually for Jack Spicer. So they kind of react to a lot of his work, but that poem in particular that I just read. I am a symptom of your radiation, Jack. The poet is a tumor. Poet is a counter-punching reactor. The poet is an organism overwhelmed by its own radiation. Unable to shape vibrations, can the poem rest in a body? Yes, radiant liar. The tissue reacts as a glyph system. I lie down in the road, a symptom of its potential. Little gods rot all around me. Tissue falls from their hands as they sing our transient song. I read your biography, Jack, and find myself unable. A god, I guess, written to scale. I am Apollo's funny puppet, strung up to the wrong sun. I recite the index of my gods. Sappho and Williams, Zukovsky and Guest, Borges, and you, Jack. I become embarrassed and professorial. Elegy begins in lament, but I've not learned its resuscitative properties. Biography is Greek for life writing. I feel the air of another planet. Versions of heaven press into my legs. Spring is the color of money. Interest to cruise. I sing, I sing, I sing. Vocabulary clippings sort their grammar, their liminal and bright shepherd apparatus. Coded adornments fall as fragments, and perception dresses, addresses their commodity. Transiments is the practice of moving livestock from pasture to pasture according to seasonal change. Arcadian seasons, however, are static so that shepherds may sing instead of labor. Commodity moves through its subject and its subject's muscles. The subject's muscles ache from non-linguistic application. The poet's profit mode bubbles throughout. The manuscript's subject position is sky color and nerve damage, loop flare, and site-specific unmolding. Names in the scholarly etymological box set and the automized present subjunctive. The outmoded lamentation technique, its pyre and the pyre's liminal hinge over watermarked grief. It's 18% shy of monograph length. Corporate holdings move through the poet's capillaries and the unnamed chemical underwriting of subject. Charles Gable will market himself as a literary scholar, complete with bibliography, fellowships, etc. The university will offer a minimum of five years of financial support. The poet says Charles Gable. The poet says Charles Gable, but he remains inert. The nerve bundle cannot wail in this context, but the lucky him may spike investment. Patronage isn't dead, the poet perhaps says to Charles Gable, etc. Oh, dearest gentlest editors. Yeah? The attached poems are from a long sequence titled Oracular Organism. 
No reply. When I had asked several facts about the organism, okay, the organism suffers from a severe redaction of consciousness. The organism's finite borders enact consistent crisis. The organism's credit card accumulates interest at a rate of 26.99% annually. The organism is a liar. The organism is a symptom, terrible and bibliographic. The organism's data is collapse. It's a really terrible credit card. I need to get a new one. This is the last poem. The poem's membrane abstracts deliberately from loving forms. Parallel tissues scaffold poetic command. Parallel tissues form a precedent of stimulation and warm static ensconces content speaking rhythms reverberate through tissue throughout. The dreamer's name bleeds his vocabulary, approaching reflection. The liar's iris disappears in dilation. The radio cures its spells between us, a replete and exhumed music, not touching exactly. Text touching human skin composed of beautiful cells is only available as potential. I'm sorry. I've failed. Forgive me this linguistic hypertrophy. Forgive me this modernist savagery. But antiquity is over. My poems are no longer loving acts. All right. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Charles. That's awesome. Uh, are you going to read at the open mic um, on April the 5th for the first Poetry in the Garden series? Reading, yes. Possibly? Yeah. So uh, come on out and listen to Charles on April 5th and others. That will be the launch of the Poetry in the Garden series, April the 5th. Tuesday, that's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. at the main branch. So thank you for this, uh, for listening. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillert, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer in Residence. This podcast was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or at the Reading and St. Bernard branch libraries. The podcast was mixed by Adam Baker. Special thanks to Kimber L. Fender, Sandy Bullock, Missy Dieters, Kate Lawrence, and Chris Rice, and to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Also, thanks to the band Amphibians for providing the song Sharkbait for this podcast. Learn more about the Writer-in-Residence and related events on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. There you can also read our Inside the Writer's Head blog and comment about this podcast. Be sure to join us again next month for another Inside the Writer's Head podcast.